So we're in journey through Genesis. This is part 23, Genesis 25, part 2, and Genesis 26, part 1. And so I'm going to say a prayer before we get started, and we'll jump right into it. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight. I pray, God, that you would just reveal truth to us. Help us to see some truth in these scriptures that touches our hearts, improves our life and our walk with you. And we give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Uh, Verse 24, let's just pick up there, and that will be our review and our introduction. Verse 24, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, speaking of Rebekah, and the first came out red, he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Harry Esau. They called him Esau, but it's funny. He was hairy, so they called him Esau, which means hairy. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so he was called Jacob, which means heel grabber. That's just the way they did things back then, y'all. I'm telling you, I think that's just hilarious. And aren't you glad that you weren't named the first thing that came out of somebody's mouth when they looked at you as you were born, right? All the different names we could have had. And here was Harry and heel grabber. Esau referred to the fact that he was a just a hairy guy. Jacob was holding on to his, his brother's heel. I mentioned last time that heel catcher had a double meaning in that day. It was the idea of a trickster or a con man. Now, conventional wisdom back in the day, especially when it came to inheritance, was that the younger is subject to the older. The older got preferential treatment. You hear the double portion blessing. That went to the eldest. But in this case, God flips it on its head. And he had done this before and did it later. The older would be made subject to the younger. In a sense, we saw this with Cain and Abel. When Cain uh, was the eldest, but Abel was the preferred. Really, in a sense, we saw this with Cain and Seth, who came later. He was even younger, and yet Seth was preferred. It could be argued that Haran and Nahor were subject to Abram, their younger brother. Definitely, Ishmael was subject to Isaac. And then I mentioned last time how the old man is subject to the new man in the new creation, in the new birth. In Romans 9, 10 through 13, the apostle Paul used this choice of Jacob over Esau before their birth as an illustration of the sovereignty of God. Who are you to say otherwise, Paul says in essence? Who are you to argue with God? Where were you when he created everything? And and. God's choice, we see, was not based on the performance of Jacob or Esau. The choice was made when they were not yet born, nor having done any good or evil. Romans 9, 11 says that explicitly. And then we see in Malachi 1, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. This Guzik points out that some question the fairness of God making such a choice before Jacob or Esau were born. Yet, we should regard the love and the hate God spoke of in the Malachi passage in Romans 9 
as having to do with his purpose in choosing one of these two to become the heir of the covenant of Abraham. This is really in regards to the covenant. Remember, God had sworn that there would be the seed of the woman. And this is not because God chose Abraham and just picked a guy to bless him. And so the Jews are blessed because God picked Abraham one time. It was really about finding a conduit through whom the Messiah would be born, a family. And that family would be based around a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant would be expanded to include you and I. Because if we are Christ, then are we Abraham's seed and heirs according to the covenant. So this is more about Messiah being born than God preferring one over another. We know that God is no respecter of persons. And so somehow we have to reconcile this fact that Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And I'm not here to try to defend that and really give some kind of like deep exegesis of that, dig it out. But the bottom line is this, and we looked at this in Romans 9, some very difficult scriptures. We looked at this in our expedition early church. But the bottom line is this, it was all about Messiah coming into the earth. God did not hate Esau in the sense of cursing him to live a doomed life in this world or the next. But Esau, as we see in his life, was a blessed man in many ways. He was also more well-adjusted than Jacob in a lot of ways. Jacob had issues. I mentioned last time, Spurgeon said that a woman asked him, she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I don't understand why God hated Esau. Can you explain that to me? And Spurgeon said, that's not my question. My question is, how could God love Jacob? Jacob was a wreck. But it was not necessarily about Esau or Jacob. It was about Jesus. It was about getting the seed of the woman into the earth to undo what Adam had lost. So let's pick this up, verses 27 through 28. So the boys grew. Incidentally, let me stop for a second. Incidentally, that's what Bethlehem is all about. It, it blows my mind. Like if you can get a hold of that Genesis 3.15 promise, Everything after that is about Messiah getting into the earth. It makes Bethlehem even that much more special. I mean, it already is special, but you realize it. Like 4,000 years of preparation and covenants made, and your enemies are my enemies, and God fighting for and against different ones to try to bring about a marrying at Bethlehem of all places, having a baby. And, you know, I preached on it before, but it's fascinating because Bethlehem is, it says there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. They were in those fields around Bethlehem, which the Scripture refers to the tower of the flock. There were towers, a particular tower, where the shepherds would go to the top and look over their flocks to look for enemies and wolves and things like that. And so... It was in these particular fields and around this tower of the flock 
where the shepherds in the story of Jesus were watching over sheep. But those sheep were traditionally raised not for their wool per se, but to be used in sacrifices just up the road in Jerusalem at the temple. And so the sheep in those fields were used as sacrifices and of all places. No wonder the Lord was leading Abraham, leave the place of Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that I will show you. Because thousands of years later, that's where Joseph would be going to pay the taxes. He's going to see Uncle Sam, in this case, Uncle Claudius, or one of those emperors. He's going to pay the taxes. And they end up in the field where the sheep are watched for sacrifice. And then here comes Jesus, born in a stable, right? Because there was no room for him in the end. And he is the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. So, in other words, with that all in mind, that's what this is all about. This is not about Jacob and Esau. This is about Jesus. So, verse 27 and 28. Are you with me? So, the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So, we see right here off the bat, Esau is Isaac's favorite. And Jacob is Rebekah's. Esau is the apple of his father's eye. Jacob is a mama's boy, right? Jacob is a mama's boy. And Jacob likes to cook. And Esau likes to hunt. It's just stereotypical. Playing out, you know, here's the hairy guy out in the field. And here's the mild-mannered man that's at home with mama, and he's in the kitchen, and he's cooking. Now, the, the, the idea is mild is, is more a, an idea of wholeness instead of someone who is weak or effeminate. The Hebrew word mild is used in Job, uh, describing Job. It says, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. He, he is a whole man, an upright man, a blameless man. And it really is referring to this uh, Jacob in such a way, not so much that he's soft, even though it kind of I kind of presented it that way. It, I mean, he's in the kitchen, he's with his mama, he's not out in the field. And there's Esau out there hunting. You know, he's got his bow and his arrow. He's got his orange on. Well, he probably doesn't have his orange on. He's probably got some mud on him. You know, he's camoed up. He's ready for it. And he's out there. And Isaac loved him because, why? Because he brought him venison. He brought him deer meat. He loved that. Go get me some deer meat, boy, and get your brother to cook it up, you know. And then verse 29, now Jacob cooked a stew. And Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so that what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, beans, 
Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And this now gets into the meat of the story, no pun intended. This gets into what it's all about. We see the sons acting and consistent with, you know, their inclinations. Esau hunts, Jacob cooks. But Jacob valued the birthright that belonged to the older son Esau. As I said, in that day it was customary for the elder son to get the double portion, to get the majority of the inheritance and also to become the patriarch of the family. But in this particular case, it held significant weight because this is the Abrahamic covenant being passed down through the patriarchal system. And so it's not just that I'm going to get my father's wealth and I'm going to get the value of his name and, and I will become the patriarch of the family. It's that God, they knew the story. If you'll remember, Jacob and Esau were raised by a guy who had had the knife in his 30s raised above his head by his father Abraham coming down to kill him. I've explained to you my theory on that. I believe it. I think there's scriptural evidence that Abraham had explained to Isaac what was going on. Isaac is typical of Jesus. He's the complicit, the passive, the receptive, the humble, the submitted son yielding to the will of the father, and it required his own sacrifice, and he willingly lays his life down. He could have taken the old man, but he lays his life down. Jacob and Esau are raised by that guy. They know the story. They know the significance. And Isaac is raised by a man, as we know from Romans chapter 4, by the time he becomes this elder after Genesis 22. Abraham is not weak in faith. He gives glory to God for things that have not come to pass yet. He calls things that be not as though they are. Like Abraham is a, I say it all the time, but like it's it's a language our modern culture gets. He's a Jedi in the force, man. Like he is well advanced and developed in his faith. He doesn't waver at the promises of God. He gives glory to God for things not manifested. This old man is strong, and he's put that faith in his son Isaac. Isaac's wife, Rebecca's barren, remember, and and Isaac prays the prayer of faith, and it takes 20 years, but she has these twins. That's who raised Jacob and Esau. They know the story. Land belongs to us wherever we put our feet. Nations are coming from us. All the earth will be blessed because of us. And Esau says, who cares? And Jacob says, I want that. I want to be a part of that. Now, are you with me? There are the I, the Calvinists, you know, that believe God has foreordained everything, that free will is not really a thing. It really doesn't exist. That God has sovereignly selected the ones who can be saved and will be saved and sovereignly selected those who will be lost. I, and there's hyper-Calvinism that is just 
man, it just boxes everything in. There, there is no freedom. There is no uh, power of choice. I call that brand of Calvinism, it's super hyper-Calvinistic, expialidocious, right? Hyper-Calvinism. But when it comes to uh, Romans 9 and Jacob and Esau, we see where, you know, God in the womb, you know, he said, before they had done anything, good or evil, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. But it's the, I believe, the foreknowledge, and, and there's a lot of arguments about that. I'm not here to try to figure it all out. But what I'm saying is, it, it's just amazing, though, how it worked out. However you dissect it, Esau didn't care, and Jacob cared. He said, I value this covenant. I want to be a part of it. Now, here's what's incredible. Like Spurgeon said, the question is not, how could God hate Esau? It's like, how could God love Jacob? How could God pull Jacob into this covenant? Because Jacob is a scoundrel, as we're going to see. He really lives up to his name. He's a politician. He's a backslapper. He's a liar. He, he's a backstabber. He, he is a manipulator of the highest order. And yet, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even after he changes his name, which we'll see soon, after he changes his name to Israel, he still calls him Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As if to say, I can do what I want to do with who I want to do it with. And, and let me just go ahead and bring some practical here. You don't have to be perfect to be in this covenant. You don't have to get it all right to be in this covenant. You just put your heart towards him and say, I want that. I want you. I want to walk with you. You can fall and make mistakes. Hey, we all do. If you're perfect, leave. You're going to blow it. We got a good thing going here of imperfect people. And if you got a good thing going and you're that perfect, we're going to mess you up. I promise you. I've seen it. We've messed people up before. We'll mess you up. We have a 100% record of messing people up. And the reason is because everybody really is messed up that come in this place. It's just some of them didn't realize it, and then they got a revelation. Oh, I am messed up. I'm messed up too. Yeah. And the wife is like, I told you you were messed up. you know. Or the husband's like, I told you you were messed up. The thing is, we all have warts. We all have bumps. We all have bruises. We all fall. Our knees are scraped up. But we have a Jesus who ever lives to make intercession for us. He's already made a way. His blood is sufficient. He's got a name above every name. And he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the rest that we enter into, this covenant that has come through the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. So, <clears throat> we see, let's go ahead and go to verse 29. Uh, we did that, didn't we? So Jacob gets the birthright. And what I don't quite understand is that this idea that Jacob gave him this and, and, and told Esau, swear to me today. So he swore to him. So they made this deal that stuck. Years later, when Esau was wanting it back, because we're going to see that, you know, 
book of Hebrews says that Esau sought it with tears and, and sought repentance, and he couldn't find it. And let me help you with that real quick. Sometimes we think that, um, you know, I told y'all before, I grew up where, you know, like we, we threw the term reprobate around a lot. Or I heard that growing up, like, man, he's got a reprobate mind. He's been turned over to a reprobate mind. People told, said that of me. I heard it later. They're like, we thought you was reprobate. <laughs> and, and what we meant by that, and it's a scripture, talks about a reprobate mind, that when you cross a line and you can never come back. And it's like Esau, you know, he crossed a line and he could never come back. And so in the Hebrews passage, and maybe I should have turned to it, but in the Hebrews passage, when it says that he, he couldn't, he couldn't find a place of repentance. It means he couldn't undo what they just did. This swearing of this covenant right here, give me that brother. They, that could not be undone. Even though he wept and cried, when the blessing of Isaac had passed it on, this deal they made, it could not be undone. It was legal in the eyes of God. And so uh, l- let me just encourage you, if your kid, if you think your kid's gone too far, if you think you've gone too far, I'm just going to tell you, I believe that there is a thing as a reprobate mind. I think there are lines you can cross. But it's not that God won't have you back. It says you don't want to come back. And if you have any kind of inkling, I want to come back, that's not what Hebrews is talking about with Esau. If you want to come back, that means you can come back. And so people said, we thought you were reprobate. Well, I thought I was too, like as far as I never wanted to come back. But then something turned in me, and the Lord got a hold of me. And I think it was some people praying. I think it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I think it was the right time, the right place. I'm rambling. I don't know why. But I I remember in my story, in my testimony, there was a particular book that was instrumental in turning me around. And it's 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 just crazy. It's the way it worked. But I was so far gone. You know, Valerie and I swore we would never go to church again. We would never go to a Pentecostal church for sure. People crazy, you know, legalist, judgmental. Like we just, man, I just, we were eaten up. We just would not have anything to do. And literally made a pact. We'll never go to one of these crazy churches. And my my mother got a hold of a book from her pastor who is uh, passed away now, Daniel Kalk. Daniel Kalk was a friend of my family, and Dan Kalk gave my mom a book, and she passed that. She read it, and she passed that book to me. I lived in Nashville. I thought I was a rock star or whatever, you know, slow down, living the dream. And uh, and I, my mom gave me this book, and I read this book, and it was a religious book. I didn't read religious books. I did, but I read, like, books on Buddhism, you know, and Eastern mysticism, meditation, and whatever. And uh, I read this book, and it had this profound effect on me. And whereas I didn't think I would ever go back, like, there was a little bit of a turning in me. And it just, it, and it was the Holy Spirit using that book to, to move me and to make, open my mind to fresh. What I'm saying is this. Even people that think I'll never go back, I don't ever want to go back, you just never know what's going to 
trigger them, what's going to hit them, what's just going to awaken them, and they're going to have an epiphany in a moment where they come to their senses. You know, that, that, that whole idea of the prodigal and the pig pen, when he came to himself, like he, he was out there having a good time, but then he something, poverty in the pig pen, and he comes to himself and he says, I will arise. Never thought he'd go back. I will arise. So what I'm saying is this. If you, ha- if you have a relative or a, a kid, a friend, and, and they've walked away from God, never write them off. Never say never because I'm telling you the devil's a liar. I got a God whose mercy is everlasting, and he knows, man, if he can get Jesus into Bethlehem, Judea, at just the right time, when at the appointed time God sent his son, made of a woman, made under the law. If God can do that, God knows how to trigger that in that, that loved one and that lost one and that prodigal. He knows how to connect to them and reel them in. But Esau made a deal with Jacob, I mean, with, with, yeah, with Jacob that could not be undone. And it was providential. God saw it. And so this birthright was passed from the elder to the younger. Esau said he was about to die. The, the thought is this. He was saying, I will die one day anyway, so what good is this birthright to me? He couldn't see past his own life, past his own nose, into the future. Jacob, though, knew this is big. This is huge. I want to be part of it. It will outlive me. Luther drew attention to the fact that Esau despised his birthright. Martin Luther pointed out that this was not, uh, that this, this idea that Esau despised his birthright and Jacob wanted that birthright. Neither one of the boys really had the authority to do with what they were talking about, what they, Luther argued this, listen to me, he, he said, Jacob tried to purchase what was already his, because Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, and Esau tried to sell something that didn't belong to him. They really were just kind of lining up with what God had already foreseen. And Donald Barnhouse points this out, history shows that men prefer illusions to realities. Choose time rather than eternity and the pleasures of sin for a season rather than the joys of God forever. Men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls. And multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. Men still sell their birthright for a mess of porridge. Now, spiritually speaking, many today despise their birthright. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 gives us this treasury that belongs to the believer. Number one, every spiritual blessing. Okay, that's pretty huge, right? That's what belongs to us. The blessing of being chosen in Christ, being adopted into God's family, complete acceptance by God in Christ, redemption from our slavery to sin, True and total forgiveness, the riches of God's grace, the revelation and knowledge of the mystery of God's will, an eternal inheritance, the guarantee of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
And so many of us trade away all of that just for a little entertainment, just for some momentary popularity or passing pleasure. Esau despised his birthright. He's portrayed in Scripture, Hebrews 12, as a fornicator and a profane person. It shows that this character in Esau was corrupted. He, he wanted things that didn't pertain to the covenant. Are you with me? Now, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 26. Let's get this started. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Now, remember, Abimelech is not the name of a person proper. It is a title. We saw this a couple chapters ago when Abraham faced an Abimelech. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give your descent to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So there was this famine, and Isaac lived in God's promises. He lived where God had told him to live, but that didn't mean that he wasn't without the challenges of his day. So there's this famine that he faces. It was similar to Abraham's day. He goes to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. So he goes southward to Egypt, just like Abraham did. And it seems that he was, uh, you know, following, and literally was, the footsteps of Abram. And Gerar was the same place where Isaac's father, Abraham, met Abimelech and made this decision to act like his wife was his sister. And, and that's what's happening here. And the Lord says, don't go down to Egypt, uh, but, but live in this place. He said, I'm going to perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. So it's this passing of the oath. God's true to his word, a land, a nation, a blessing. And then he blames it on the fact that Abraham obeyed the voice and kept the charge. And we saw that. We've looked at that extensively, how Abraham was very obedient. Look at verses uh, 6 through 11. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked about his wife. <clears throat> and notice this, like father, like son. And he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say, she's my wife. But because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, for she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass when he had been there for a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. The King James says he was sporting with his wife. And so they're flirting, right? They're, they're you know, they're flirting. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? 
Isaac said to him, because I said, she's honest, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? Again, same story. One of the people might have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all the people, people, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So there was this blessing in spite of himself, just like with Abraham. In spite of himself, God's just watching out. And really, again, it's not about Isaac. It's not about Abraham. It's about the seed of the woman. He's protecting his investments. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. He obeys the idea that she's my wife. It's just hilarious. I've got to be honest with you. I've never said, you know what? Well, you know, Valerie, she's my sister. Never had to pull that card out, you know. Oh, yeah, my sister. You know, like, anyhow, different day, different time. So uh, the Lord protects, again, protects his investment. Now, verses 12 through 14, we'll stop on this. Then Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Isaac sowed in the land in the middle of a famine. Powerful story as far as I'm concerned that in spite of everything tightening up, he sowed in spite of that. He sowed in faith. And like Abraham, he was walking in a faith that was growing stronger and stronger. And he receives a hundredfold in the middle of a famine. He receives in the middle of a famine. I'm going to just tell you some application right here. When things are tight, when things are tough, when you don't feel like it, don't be afraid to give. And I don't just mean money. But that applies. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. You know, Dave Ramsey's real big on that. But so is Jesus. So is the Bible. So when it comes to, I don't feel like it, or you don't understand, Donovan, we can't afford to tithe right now because things are tight. I'm going to tell you, you can't afford not to tithe. You can't afford not to give offerings. As a matter of fact, when things tighten up, give more. There's something more powerful about a sacrifice, a sacrificial offering, giving when it hurts. My dad makes a joke. He says, I give till it hurts. I just can't stand a lot of pain, you know. <laughs> and that's how we are sometimes. I give till it hurts. Yeah, Pastor. But I just don't like a lot of pain. I just give a little bit. You know, it hurts a little bit, so I can stop. Give until it hurts because there's something powerful about that. We see that right here with Isaac. He sowed in the middle of a famine, and the Lord blessed him with a hundredfold return, and he began to prosper. He already had prospered with Abraham. He inherited Abraham's blessing. But here he is giving and become. There's some people in this church, can I just say this? God's wanting to bless you in 2018 like never before. God's wanting to show his hand of provision on you like never before. Some of you, I'm just going to be a pastor, and I'm closing. Maybe it's the end of the year rambling, and pastor's lost his mind. But I'm going to tell you, there's people in this room, you've never owned a house in your life. 
God wants you to own the house that you stay in, that you live in. Some of you have said, you don't understand, my credit scores tanked. I've had financial setbacks. It's not possible. I'm going to tell you, with God, all things are possible. God knows how to get the stuff to you. God can send his angels to move up on behalf of you. God can prosper your business. God can give you a better job. God wants to bless some people. We come from these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, from the Christ that came from that covenant. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And God even blesses us in our finances and our pocketbooks. Now, I'm going to tell you, there are some churches that they slam the name it and claim it prosperity preachers. And you know me, folks. I got balance. I'm not believing for gold Cadillacs and that kind of stuff. But those same people that slam name it and claim it and prosperity message preachers, and they'll wag their finger and they say, we don't believe in that pie in the sky, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, blah, 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 blah. We don't believe in that. They'll, every church service, they'll pass the pan and they'll say, listen, he's promised to open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you can't contain. And God wants to bless you in your finances. And, and they'll receive that offering, right? And they'll say, God will bless you. You're a giver. God will bless. And they'll make the caveat. But no, we're not talking about gold Cadillacs just like I do. But I'm going to tell you something. The truth of the matter is there's more in the Bible about money than about prayer. There's more in the Bible about money than just about any other subject. The Lord spoke about uh, increase, finances, money. So much of the Scripture. And I just want to encourage you. If he cares about every sparrow that falls, if he cares about the hairs of your head falling out, why would he not care about your bills being paid? Why would he not care about you having a roof over your head? Why would he not care about you having food on your table? The Bible says he does. He does. How much more valuable are you to our Heavenly Father? He wants to bless some people in ways financially that you've never seen. I'm going to tell you something. A blessed church is the result of blessed people, and blessed people are the result of a blessed church. In other words, when you support the local church, when you support the body of Christ in a, in a local gathering, in a local community, then the Lord blesses you, and as you're blessed, the church is blessed more, right? And so it's this redemptive lift. The Lord wants to lift us up to the next level in 2018, and I'll be issuing my pastor's challenge on the first Sunday of January, where I'll be pushing. If you've never tithed, tithe. If you've never given offerings, give offerings. The Lord wants to bless you. Amen? Some of you are going to get debt free in the next year, in the next two years, in the next five years, in the next ten years. God wants to give you some plans. He wants to give you some ideas. He wants to give you some machinations, right? He wants to give you some systems and processes to take you to that next level. But you position yourself for that by being open. Isaac sowed when things were tight, and he couldn't outgive the Lord. And the Lord just blessed him, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. How many of you are interested in something like that, huh? I'm interested in something like that. I want all my needs met according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I, I want to be blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, but I also want the roof over my head to be mine and to be paid for. 
I want to drive in paid-for vehicles. How many of you like to eliminate your car note, right? There's some bills you can't eliminate. You're going to have taxes. You're going to have insurance. But I tell you what, you can eliminate your car note. And in Jesus' name, you can eliminate your house note. There's some people, you've done it. You understand. And I'm believing God wants to take us to that next level. Why don't you stand with me right now? I'm just rambling here. Eight thirteen. Isaac sowed in the land, and the Philistines envied him. You know who the Philistines were? They were people who didn't have a covenant with God. They were people who didn't have a strength that came from another world. And David ran after Goliath. He called him an uncircumcised Philistine. You uncovenanted, big old fella. You are nothing compared to my great big old God. And I, I may be young, I may be smaller than you, but I'm in a covenant with God. And if God is for me, who can be against me? You can't be against me. And the Lord wants to encourage us tonight. It's not necessarily about you. It's about who you're connected to. That covenant with Almighty God.